So the talk this morning is not about the center. Uh, <laughs> I do actually have a topic, uh, and that is, as the Swami said, is where self and God meet, I think was what I gave, something like that. Yeah, where self meets God, that's it, where self meets God. So where is unimportant? It could be when self meets God, where self meets God, uh, if self meets God, how self meets God, a variety of... Uh, uh, adverbs uh, could be put in there, but uh, uh, I wanted to speak on this topic because yesterday, whether you were here or not, yesterday doesn't matter for today's talk, but yesterday I spoke all day on non-dualism and a rather extreme form of non-dualism. Not extreme, to my way of thinking, not extreme in a bad sense, but extreme, no doubt, in a sense of the going to the ultimate conclusions of uh, uh, non-dualism. And so I wanted to speak today on connecting that to the life of devotion, because most of us are either primarily devotees or devotion has a part in our spiritual life. And uh, so I didn't want to leave everything on the note of the world has disappeared and uh, you are the non-dual reality uh, shining with nothing to shine on. Uh, I wanted to bring it back to something that is relatable to your spiritual uh, spiritual path. So um, we'll see how that goes. Uh, let me st start by saying a little bit about why Swami... I did this a little bit yesterday, but not much. I uh, speak a little bit about why Swami Vivekananda emphasized non-dualism, why he emphasized it when Sri Ramakrishna didn't. Sri Ramakrishna certainly, he had the highest non-dualistic experience. And the more I read the gospel, one of those books that you can read for your whole life regularly and still find new things each time you read it, the more I read it now, the more I find that uh, it's full of the highest knowledge. Yes, it's clothed in devotion also. Uh, you could say it's full of the highest devotion clothed in knowledge, or you can say it's full of the highest knowledge clothed in devotion, because the two are melded into one. But uh, the feeling that we get in the early years, that Swami Vivekananda taught in one way and Sri Ramakrishna in another way, that gradually disappears. You find that, no, there's a, there's a deep, deep and visible harmony between the teachings of the two. But at the same time, there is some distinction, and, and that's uh, natural. One of the beauties of this tradition to me is that when you look at Sri Ramakrishna, Swami Vivekananda, the Holy Mother, you have such a wide variety of ideals just in those three. And then you add in the direct disciples. Uh, there's nothing boring about any of it because such a wide uh, spectrum of ideals. Each one, Sri Ramakrishna, the Holy Mother, Swami Vivekananda, each one is different from the other, but different in the way that the Vedic tradition and the Hindu tradition have uh, fostered difference. That is, different but harmonious difference. Different but connected. Different but unified, actually, not just connected. But different but unified. And uh, so it's a very rich uh, tradition with uh, a whole span of ideals, a whole span of uh, ideas and ideals and practices. 
And so Swami Vivekananda, when he came to the West, he uh, emphasized the Advaita philosophy. But remember that as Narin, as the young man, he had a very hard time accepting non-dualism. He said it was blasphemy. Uh, he said to call this cup, to say that this cup is God, that's blasphemy. And uh, he resisted Sri Ramakrishna's teaching of non-dualism, but finally had to accept it when Sri Ramakrishna touched him and gave him the direct experience of non-dualism. Uh, and after that, he became a non-dualist. And when he was in the West, he emphasized non-dualism. He taught devotion. He taught a lot of karma yoga. He taught a lot of raja yoga. Many of his talks were on raja yoga in, uh, in the West. But all through all of his teaching, you find the thread of non-dualism. Why? Uh, as I said uh, yesterday, uh, one reason was that he wanted, as he said, late in his speaking career in San Francisco, he said he wanted to try a new experiment. He wanted to teach boys and girls, he said, to teach them from their childhood that you are the infinite self, you are the glorious self, the, uh, uh, that you, all power is within you, all knowledge is within you, all glory is within you. And as I explained yesterday, the teaching which has been prevalent in the world, all over the world, uh, that you, meaning all of us, but you are small, powerless, weak, helpless, dependent, uh, and uh, unworthy, and in some traditions you are sinful by nature. That idea is not natural to humanity. We may think it is now, because we've heard it since childhood, but we've been trained in that. Society has trained us in that. That's not a natural idea. A child isn't born with the idea that I'm weak, I'm helpless, I'm uh, no good, uh, I'm dependent on everybody. We're trained in that idea. And so Swami Vivekananda, seeing that, he thought, what if we give people the actual truth, that you are the self, you are the divine self, all power is inside of you, all knowledge is inside of you, that's such a strange idea to us, but it shouldn't be. That's our own experience. The knowledge is inside. The teacher gives the suggestion, but the knowledge flashes inside. The teacher doesn't pour knowledge in, into our heads. The teacher says something, and it suggests something, and suddenly we see, ah, that's it, that's it. All we needed was a suggestion. But the knowledge comes with, from within. The experience of knowledge comes from within. In fact, Shankaracharya says in his Upa, Upadesha Sahasri, uh, he says that all knowledge is non-dualistic knowledge. Knowledge by its very nature is non-dualistic. When I understand something, uh, I'm one with the understanding. The understanding flashes within my, the light of my own consciousness. And so Swami Vivekananda thought that why not try an experiment and teach people the actual truth? Teach them that all power is inside of you, all knowledge is inside of you. Yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we do things that are wrong. Yes, we do things that are immoral. Yes, we hurt other people. All of that is true. But to understand where that comes from, it doesn't come from an evil nature. It comes from a misunderstanding. It comes from ignorance. And so Swami Vivekananda said, the Vedanta teaches no sin. That's a surprise even to Indians, because in Indian languages, including Sanskrit, there's the word papa and papi. Papa, sin, and papi, I'm a sinner. And Swami Vivekananda says, uh, Vedanta recognizes no sin. 
Well, how do you reconcile that? Well, there are two things. One thing, is, well, they're both tied to the same thing, and that is that the basic idea is that the idea of sin, uh, uh, as it's understood in uh, uh, the West, is that I sin because my very nature is bad. Uh, and when I sin, I'm doing something against God, these two ideas, that I'm doing something against God. My God gave the Ten, Commandment, Ten Commandments and a basic moral law. And so when I do something, I'm going against God's law. And God doesn't like it. God isn't happy because we've broken his law. He doesn't like that uh, he gave the agreement to Moses and we're supposed to be following it and we're not following it. And that, that, that does not please God. And so sin is against God. Uh, and it proceeds from the fact that I am sinful by nature, that I am born in sin, I live in sin, and I remain in sin. Yes, I can become forgiven, but I'm a forgiven what? I'm a forgiven sinner. I'm a forgiven sinner. And so that idea is not in Vedanta. The idea is that if I do something wrong, I do it out of ignorance. And this especially in the Advaita Vedanta, which is what Swami Vivekananda taught, the non-dualistic Vedanta. Not as opposed to devotion, as often it was uh, uh, taught by some, not all, not certainly not by Shankaracharya, but by some, but as the foundation for spirituality itself, he taught non-dualism. And so this idea that, first of all, that morality is a law that's given by God that uh, if I break it, I'm disappointing God, I'm hurting God. That idea is not there. The idea of karma takes care of the uh, moral law and the moral order of the universe. The universe is made in a uh, moral way. There's a moral fiber to the universe. That just as if I put my hand in fire and I burn my uh, fingers, I don't say, oh my God, God, God is displeased with me because I, I broke his law. The law is not to put your hand in fire because it will burn, and so God burned me. No, we think, I did something stupid. I put my hand where it shouldn't go. And it's a natural law that I burnt my hand by putting it in fire. God doesn't come into the picture as far as being a judge and being angry with me for putting my hand in fire. No, I just did something stupid, so I learned from it. Uh, and so mor morality is the same. That is that uh, I do something wrong and my karma brings back the fruit to me. Uh, and karma is a mechanism for learning. Karma is often presented as pure retribution, that is, uh, rewards and punishments for actions. No, just rewards and punishments, what's the use of that? What's the use of it? And karma really is pretty uh, pretty poor uh, mechanism. No, the purpose of karma is to learn. We get feedback by our actions, and so we learn from our actions. And so that takes away judgment from God. God is not the judge who's looking at what I'm doing and saying, uh-oh, Swami did something wrong. I'm going to have to. I'm going. I'm. I'm not happy, and I'm going to get. I'm going to. I'm going to punish him. How can I love a God like that? How can I love a God like that? I can't. I well, I shouldn't say I can't because there are plenty of people who became great saints with that idea, but they had to leave that idea of God behind when they went high in their spiritual life, as you find they did. Someone like Saint Teresa of Avila and other great saints like that. 
For them, God was no longer a judge. They didn't see God in those terms. Uh, and so Swami Vivekananda said that there is no sin, no sin in that sense. Yes, I do wrong things. Why do I do something wrong? Why does the murderer kill? Because the murderer thinks that that is going to be to his or her benefit. They think that by doing this, I'm going to get some benefit. I'm going to become free from some trouble by getting rid of this person. I'm going to be happy because I can kill them and take their wealth, and then I will be happy, and then I'll be free from my need. We do things out of ignorance because we think we do something wrong out of ignorance because I think that by doing this, it's the quickest way to happiness. All of us are seeking the same things. We're seeking to be, that is to extend our life, because that's all we know of being is living in a body. So I try to extend my life, which is an effort to be. I want to know. Even the person who hates school doesn't hate knowing. They hate going to the work of uh, uh, homework and studies and all of that. But everybody wants to know, to understand. Uh, and uh, we all want happiness, which includes love. We all want joy and love, the two being connected. And so everybody is doing everything they do for the same reasons. Included, it's the same motivation behind the saint as behind the sinner. It's just that the saint knows what he or she is doing, whereas the sinner uh, is doing it ignorantly, seeking the same thing uh, ignorantly. So Swami Vivekananda emphasized this non-dualistic knowledge in order to uh, uh, conduct this cosmic or at least worldwide experiment of teaching people the truth. He said, why give people ditch water when the river of life is flowing by? Let us give them the uh, river of life, this knowledge that you are the divine self. All glory, all knowledge, all beauty is inside of you. And so he thought that that in time would do great good to the world. Uh, he said in his famous words, as I quoted yesterday, or paraphrased, uh, but it's a, close to a quotation, he said, this knowledge, this knowledge of the self, will make a fisherman a better fisherman, a lawyer a better lawyer, a student a better student. And eventually it will help them, he said, to realize the highest truth. So he felt that this would help people here and now. Instead of thinking that I'm weak, I'm no good, what greater demotivator is there than that idea to constantly tell ourselves that we're no good? On my own, I can't do anything worthwhile. Yes, I may become a saint through that idea. Yes, it's possible. Uh, if I can uh, think that I'm no good and so let me depend on God. But how many people can think it that intensely? How many people? One of the things, the, this uh, tangential note I want to make here, it's connected and important, uh, though it's tangential, is that Swami Vivekananda saw that ideas have social consequences. We teach that all religions are true. Yes, all religions are true. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we agree with every teaching of every religion, but it means that every religion followed as a, uh, 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 within its own logic has the power to take us to the realization of God, the same reality. It has the power to take us there. But Swamiji felt also that ideas have social consequences. And this idea that you are a sinner... Uh, that you are unworthy, that that has unfortunate social consequences. And so, yes, it's true that one 
can take up that idea uh, and along with the other ideas, not because of that idea, but along with the other ideas, one can still come to God and that's good. But he felt that there was a better way forward for humanity. And so he emphasized this uh, knowledge of uh, non-dualism. There's another uh, lesser, less important reason, but still important, and that is that one can follow the path of non-dualism even if one doesn't believe in God. And nowadays there are many people who find belief in God difficult. There are people also who don't find the idea of God so difficult uh, to believe in, but they don't like it because... They think of uh, a person who had a cruel father uh, finds it sometimes impossible to think of God as father. A person who had a bad mother finds it difficult to think of God as mother because every time they think of God as mother, it reminds them of their mother who caused them pain. And so there's some people who either can't believe in God or some people who find that the idea of God is problematic because of their own life experiences. And so for them, the path of non-dualism is open because it doesn't require the belief in God. Uh, but the main reason Swamiji taught it was because it was the fundamental truth. Uh, and he wanted people to start with that faith in themselves, not to deny the value of devotion. Swamiji himself was a great devotee. He said that Sri Ramakrishna was all devotion on the outside, but all knowledge on the inside. Whereas I am all knowledge on the outside, but all devotion on the inside. And Swamiji was a great devotee, as we see from many incidents in his life. Uh, and so that brings us to the topic where uh, self meets God, because the self does meet God. There's a basic harmony between the two ideas. We don't need to see them in opposition to each other. There's some people whose path, spiritual path, is quite clear-cut. They have a particular attitude, and that's all that they want, and uh, they hold on to it. There's some people who take up uh, the non-dualistic path. They don't want anything to do with God. Uh, they don't uh, like devotional practices. They're not interested in japa and worship and puja and all of those things. They just want to know, who am I? Uh, and they follow that as an integral path, and that's good. There are other people who don't want anything to do with non-dualism. They like devotion, they understand devotion, and they don't want anything to do uh, with non-dualism. They don't like even the discussion of non-dualism. Uh, so they, they do their worship, they do their uh, bhajan, uh, they do their uh, prayer and so forth, and that's fine. That also is a good integral path in itself. But many of us find that we want something of both. We want something of both. And that also is possible. That also is good. And there are probably many more people that fall into that category. And there, there's a whole spectrum. There, there are as many ways to com combine knowledge and devotion as there are different people. Uh, because we're all different and we all see the path differently. But there are many ways to combine the two. So let me spend a moment talking about the ideals of the two paths in themselves, the jnana path just in itself and the bhakti path just in itself. Uh, and then we can see, the, in principle, why there can be a harmony between the two. Why does someone seek self-knowledge? Why does someone seek to know the self? 
some people find it easy to think in terms of, to think more easily, in, they find it easier to think in terms of self rather than object. They're naturally self-oriented. That doesn't mean selfish. Selfish means I want something for this Swami Atmarupananda that I don't want you to have, you other people. But here self means they find it easier to think of the subject rather than to think of the object. It doesn't even mean that they're uh, introverts as opposed to extroverts. Uh, no, both introverts and extroverts can be of either path. But it means that some people find it easy to think subjectively. Uh, and their main question in the spiritual path is who am I? Let me go on another tangent. I love tangents, unfortunately. And usually I find my way back. Sometimes I don't. Um, <laughs> but uh, another tangent here. Another reason why Swami Vivekananda taught uh, non-dualism. Uh, because he saw that one of the great movements in the modern age was the movement of uh, democracy. Not specifically in political terms. Swamiji wasn't interested in politics. But he saw it as a movement a movement away from the idea that the king is uh, to be worshipped, the king or the queen, that they are the value of society. And my uh, purpose for existence is to dedicate myself to my king or my queen. They are the value and we are the satellites around the king and the queen. No, democracy says that value is located in the individual person, that value and autonomy is located uh, within you, the people. Uh, not within a leader. Uh, and so he saw that as a very hopeful movement in society. And you see that the will for democracy is all over the world. You find it everywhere. Again, I'm not talking in a particular political, political setup as in the United States or in some other democratic country. Different countries will find there are different ways to express the democratic urge. But you find that no one is willing anymore to be hidden away in a closet. Nobody is willing to be oppressed. Nobody is willing to have their autonomy, their power uh, uh, taken away from them. Uh, everyone wants to uh, have autonomy. And so Swamiji saw that as springing from the nature of the self itself. It can be expressed ignorantly, certainly. It can be expressed selfishly, certainly. It can be expressed in a bad way, certainly. But that the fundamental urge was good. And so he saw that Advaita was the natural uh, religion for a people who are seeking autonomy. Because Advaita, unlike any other system of thought, gives autom autonomy to the person. It says reality is within you. You don't have to seek reality out there. Reality is within you. Value is within you. Value is not out there. Joy is your own nature. Joy is inside of you. It's not something you have to get out there. And uh, so that was another reason, uh, one, of the, one of the other primary reasons why he emphasized non-dualism. But now coming back to why, what the non-dualist seeks. The non-dualist seeks the self, self-knowledge, the highest self, the impersonal self. That to uh, one who's uh, devoted to that path, th th those are glorious words, inspiring words. To people who aren't devoted to that path, it is self-knowledge, who wants that? I want, the, I want to sing and dance in the glory of God and enjoy the bliss of God and I want to worship God and all of that. Uh, the path of non-dualism is a boring path. But no, not to a non-dualist, to, to one who's committed to that path. The very idea is inspiring. Uh, whereas a, de a devotee is seeking to worship the divine object. 
but a very special object, an object who is the innermost subject. God is the divine object, object in the sense that we pray to uh, God, we worship, we offer worship to God, but we also recognize that God is the soul of my soul. In the puja, when we do puja, there's a part in the, when we do a full puja, not 16 item, but even just a regular daily puja, if we do the full thing, 10 item puja. And then there's a part where we meditate on God within the heart, taking a flower, and then we breathe out the presence of God in the heart, even thinking of the form from the heart, the form of God we're worshiping, coming from the heart and sitting on the flower. We put the flower on the altar and then we offer worship. What does that mean? That I'm taking the antaryami, the soul of my soul, who is God in this form, be it Sri Ramakrishna, be it Holy Mother, be it uh, Kali or Krishna or Jesus or Buddha, whomever, in whatever form, I'm taking that presence out and putting on the altar and offer, offering my worship. So yes, I'm objectifying God. So in devotion, we objectify God and we seek the divine object, but an object only in the sense of objectified for the sake of devotion, because that same God is the subject of all, the heart of my heart, the soul of my soul. And so you see that the path of devotion and the path of non-dualism are not so far separated when you begin to think in those terms. If you look at the externals of devotion and knowledge, they look very different. The follower of the path of jnana, he's studying his Brahma Sutra commentary and the Viveka Chudamani and to some perspectives, other boring books. <laughs> and thinking about the self and thinking about the self which is beyond space and time and thinking that the whole universe exists within him and that, that, uh, that uh, the, the, the self is beyond all qualities, beyond personality, uh, beyond anything you can think about. So if it's beyond any think about, uh, anything you can think about, why should I think about it? <laughs> uh, but that's the delight for the jnani. But for the devo uh, devotee, they're seeking uh, God, the beloved, to whom they pour out their heart. They're seeking person. They're seeking person. But they're seeking a very special person, a very special person, an infinite person, and a person who is the innermost heart of their own heart. Uh, and so, again, you're coming closer to the meeting place where soul meets God or where self meets God. Better not to t talk in terms of soul because that uh, confuses with other religious ideas of what the soul is. But where the soul, where the self uh, meets God. Because the personhood of God, even for a devotee, there comes a place at the heights of devotee, uh, uh, devotion where a devotee finds that the very personhood of God disappears. It disappears into what? It disappears into the very unfathomable depths of God. Now, one of the problems with the path of knowledge for a devotee uh, is that the path of knowledge seems to deny the reality of God, that oh, we don't talk about personality and all of that's for devotees. We want the real thing, the Atman, Brahman, which is beyond all of that. We want to go to the, to, to the truth, not to these uh, the, the, the ideas of God and personality and all of that. But no, what is the experience of a Ramakrishna? What is the experience of a Saint Teresa of Avila? What is the experience of many other saints who had both a non-dualistic experience and a devotional experience? It is that they go into the very heart of the personal God, 
uh, and there they become one with the essence of the personal God. They lose themselves in infinite love. That doesn't deny the personal God for them. That is the ultimate union with God. They go to the very heart of God, which is for them, which is the non-dual reality. From the standpoint of knowledge, you don't think about God. If you're on a pure path of non-dualism, the path of knowledge, just the pure path of knowledge, you may not even think about God. God doesn't even figure in your uh, spiritual life. You're just seeking to know who am I. And so oftentimes that path seems to deny God, whereas the path of devotion is all based on God, on the affirmation of God, seeking the reality of God. But when we get there, we find that the externals of God melt away and we, we want to come to the heart of God. Think of it this way, that if I were to come so close to God, say I'm seeking, uh, say my, if my Ishta is uh, someone like the Holy Mother, say uh, the Holy Mother, I'm seeking the Holy Mother, and I come so close to her, when I come so close to her, then I just want to melt into her. I want to melt into her. And so devotees have used, uh, in all traditions, including the Muslim tradition, have used a beautiful expression such as the moth uh, falling so much in love with the flame that it wants to extinguish itself in the flame. Now, a scientist uh, who's overly devoted to knocking down uh, analogies and uh, metaphors may say, well, that's not why the uh, moth it doesn't love the flame. Uh, it's uh, something else going on there. Uh, but no, as a metaphor, it's beautiful that the moth so loves the flame that it seeks to extinguish itself in the flame. Or in that prayer I said at the beginning, it's not a prayer, it's an affirmation or it's a statement uh, from the Mahanarayana Upanishad. It's from the Vedas and also quoted in the Mahanarayana Upanishad as, part of, as uh, that part of the Vedas also. Uh, melting into the light, I am the light that shines. At the end it says, I myself offer myself into the infinite light which is myself. That self is God. That self is the self. There, there's no difference between self and God. If I approach it to, through love, uh, then when I come back even from that state, then still that's the God of my love. As Sri Ramakrishna, when he returned from Nirvikalpa Samadhi, he continued to clap his hands and sing Mother Kali's name. And Totapuri, who had no liking for devotion, uh, no understanding of devotion, really, because his path had been one of pure knowledge, he said, what are you doing? Making chapatis, uh, clapping your hands, uh, making fun of Sri Ramakrishna. But Sri Ramakrishna, when he came back, the mother was still real to him. And the mother was, to him, mother was Saguna and uh, Nirguna. Sakara, Nirakara, uh, Saguna, Nirguna. The mother was personal and impersonal, with qualities and without qualities, sometimes with form, sometimes without form. Without form doesn't mean impersonal because Christians, Jews, and Muslims generally worship God, personal God, without form. Uh, but without form just means uh, without a, a visible uh, shape. So uh, uh, a person who worships God comes to the point where no, I just want to, I don't want to melt into God. Do we lose ourselves when we melt into God? No, we don't lose ourselves. We don't lose ourselves. We lose everything that's small about us. Everything that is insignificant about us. The great Sufi poet Rumi 
says, I wish I could remember the, uh, uh, the actual English po uh, translation of his poem. The poem is so beautiful, but I just give a paraphrase of it. But it's a, it's a close paraphrase. It captures the meaning, just not the poetry of it. He says, what have I ever gained by dying? I was mineral, and then I died, and I became plant. I was a plant, and I died, and I became animal. I was animal, and I died, and I became man. I was man, and I died, and I became God. What have I ever lost by dying? He says in the same poem, he says, like a drop of water uh, into the ocean. Is there a drop of water lost? No, the drop of water is joined to the whole ocean. The drop gains the ocean. It loses its littleness, and it gains the ocean. And so the devotee, when coming close to God, just wants to melt into God. There was a great Italian saint, Saint uh, uh, Angelina de Foligno, not one of those who's well-known, but she should be, uh, because uh, uh, her experience was beautiful. She lived in something like the 12th or 13th century, a, a relatively early uh, European saint. Um, she said that when I entered into the deepest state of prayer and the union with God, there where I was and where God was, there was no distinction whatsoever. I went beyond the Trinity. I went beyond the all ideas of God and all ideas of the personality of God. I was lost in the bosom of God, in the very being of God, where there was no distinction between me and God. Uh, and so there are many saints who spoke in those terms, in the Christian tradition, in the Muslim tradition, in the Jewish tradition, uh, and of course in the Hindu tradition. And so the paths of knowledge and devotion are not so different. As paths, yes, they have their own integrity. And one who has an intense longing for one can follow just that, because it's an integral path and it can take them there. But there's some who want to combine the paths. And if we can find the meeting point of the two paths, then we can, uh, depending on which way we're feeling at the time, we can move from one to the other and feel that we're still going forward. The danger in spiritual life with following more than one path uh, is that if we don't see, the, if we're not after the middle point, the meeting point, then one moment we're going this way and the next moment we're going that way. And then we're going this way and we're going that way. And it's a tug of war and we don't feel we're going forward. We go a little bit this way when suddenly my mind has a different mood and I'm going that way in a different direction. And I'm not going forward. So what we have to be careful of in spiritual life is that our path is integral. It is an integral path. We're not going in different directions. We're going in one direction. But that one direction, if we see the meeting point between the two, then we can find ways to combine the two. The great Meister Eckhart, a German mystic of the 13th and 14th centuries, and the most, non, uh, most jnana-oriented and the most non-dualistic of all of the Christian mystics, and most purely non-dualistic. There were many Christian saints who had non-dualistic experience, as we can see from a study of their words. But he was the most clearly non-dualistic. He said that any two spiritual truths, if they're both true, can be harmonized. They can be harmonized. If they're both true, then there is, a, there is an underlying harmony, and we can find that. And so there is an underlying harmony between knowledge and devotion. And if we can find that, we can, we can follow a combination of the two. Let me just give some examples, but these are only examples. These are not exhaustive by any means. These are two or three examples of hundreds or thousands or more. One example would be that if I'm devotional, but sometimes I have the desire for 
seeking uh, for uh, following the, something of the path of knowledge also. One way to do that is the way that Ramanuja taught. And Ramanuja said that first one practices karma yoga, selfless action, in order to purify the mind. That's what all of the classic acharyas said of any uh, school. They all said, follow karma yoga first to purify the mind. Then Ramanuja, the great philosopher of devotion, said, next comes jnana yoga, the path of knowledge. Why? Because I have to know myself as pure consciousness. Otherwise, how can I relate myself to God? Do I relate this piece of meat to God? Do I relate this body to God? Do I relate this fickle mind to God? No, I relate myself as consciousness to God. God is pure consciousness. And so I am individualized consciousness. So let me seek the center of my consciousness so I can offer that into God, offer my consciousness into God. So he said, next comes jnana yoga, and finally comes bhakti yoga. Finally comes bhakti. So I can seek to know the self uh, so that I can offer myself into the infinite ocean of God's consciousness. Another way is to see someone like, well, see my chosen ideal, say if it's Sri Ramakrishna, to see him as the embodiment of Advaita. Holy Mother herself said in one of her beautiful letters, a letter to Swami Bhimalanandaji, one of her disciples, said that Sri Ramakrishna was all Advaita. You are his disciples, and so you also are all Advaitins. I can say with the full force that, of course, you were a non-dualist, she says. And so Sri Ramakrishna was, as she said, was all Advaita. So we can look on him as the symbol of non-dualism. When I'm feeling in an attitude of love, I worship him as the embodiment of love. When, I'm, when I want to be happy, I uh, can worship him as the Anandavatar, the, uh, the incarnation of bliss, of joy. If you look at Sri Ramakrishna's life, you see that he was the very incarnation of joy. Uh, and when I am, uh, want to think in terms of knowledge, then uh, he is the murti, the form, the ideal of knowledge itself. When I look at this form, the photograph or the uh, uh, statue or the image of him that was taken when he was in a very high state of uh, uh, consciousness, a high state of samadhi, where he was merged in the self. And uh, so he's the very image of self-knowledge, the image of self-knowledge. And so when I meditate on him, I can think of him in that way also. Uh, if primarily my path is knowledge-oriented, but I like devotion also, uh, then the, the whole path of devotion is open to me as well, as long as I see the connection between the two. A great non-dualist like Ramana Maharshi, he said that practice japa, your very nature is japa. If you practice japa, you will realize that japa is your true nature. That's a strange statement, that your true nature is japa. What he means is, what he fully means, we can only experience, but we can understand a little bit of it by analysis, and that is that uh, uh, when I become fully absor absorbed in the mantra, the mantra alone remains, and that is revealed as myself. Each mantra, each genuine mantra, not a made-up mantra, but each genuine mantra has come from a high state of consciousness and has the power to reveal that state of consciousness. Uh, each mantra can be seen as a, uh, as a manifestation of Om, the primary mantra. And so that uh, has the power to take us back to the personal God and to the impersonal reality itself. 
And so I can do japa thinking that the japa is rising from the, uh, the, the, from the self in a devotional form. That the form that I'm meditating on, that, that that is the form of my own higher self. As Swami Vivekananda says, I have divided myself into the worshipped and the worshipper. And so I divide myself. Maybe I don't at present have the ability to really divide myself into the worshipper and the worshipped. But if I know that that is actually what is the underlying truth of my experience, that the divine being is my own self, but I haven't realized it, I think of myself as an individual, then still it's true that this little self is worshipping the infinite self, which is myself. And I myself offer myself into the infinite light, which is myself. That light of Ramakrishna, that light of Jesus, that light of Buddha, that light of Krishna, Kali, uh, whomever, whatever aspect of God. And so there's not time now, time is up, so there's not time to develop the idea further. Uh, but you get the basic idea that the distinction between devotion and knowledge is not as great as, we, uh, as it's often presented. Each path can be followed as an integral whole in itself, if that's what we want. But if, as most of us do, we have more than one tendency within us, then if we find the meeting point between the paths, then we can follow uh, more than one yoga uh, in a harmonious path towards the same direction. So I'll give a closing, I don't know what your process is here, a closing chant, is that the appropriate thing to do, so I'll do that. Om Madhuvataritayate Madhuksharanti Sindhavaha Madhvirna Santoshadhi Madhunaktamutoshasi Madhumat Parthivagum Rajaha Madhudyaurastuna Pita Madhumanovanaspatir madhumagum mastu suryaha madhvirgavo bhavandhunaha Om madhu, Om madhu, Om madhu For us who seek the truth and for all living beings, may the winds blow sweetly, may the rivers flow sweetly, May the herbs yield us sweetness. Sweet be the night and the break of day. Sweet be the very dust of the earth. May the heavens pour down sweetness upon us. May the trees, lords of the forest, bear us sweetness. May the sun shed its sweetness upon us. May all the directions pour forth sweetness. Om, sweetness, sweetness, sweetness. <laughs>